everybody, welcome to the June 24th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. First, allow me to explain why we are all in Hawaiian shirts tonight. In 2014, we lost a dear friend of the show, our longtime floor director, Susie Aikman. Because Susie loved and collected Hawaiian shirts, we wore them on a special episode of the show. We were thinking of her, and we decided that it would become an annual tradition. So it is, we're very happy to have this uh, very good annual tradition in Susie's honor. Let's get with the show. Let's get a quick take on the announcement that Sarah Palin will join Donald Trump in speaking at the Western Conservative Summit here in Denver on July 1st. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, Denver is going to be ground zero for the epic circus that will be Donald Trump and Sarah Palin speaking at the same event. Are you looking forward to it? Oh, yes, we're looking forward to it. I mean, how, what a, an um, unbelievable event to cover. And for the Western Conservative Summit that shamelessly tried to drag Trump here, they succeeded. They're going to have a bigger crowd than ever before, both outside, I'm guessing, and inside. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Trump and Palin both come with undeniable popularity, but do you think that... Uh, it also comes with a certain ability to turn off certain GOP voters when your headliners are Palin and Trump? I think it makes it hard to take the event seriously when your headliners are people who themselves are not serious. And it makes it all the more harder when it's the Western conservative summit. Donald Trump is no conservative. He's a professional narcissist of uh, changeable views. Sarah Palin is, is a conservative and a Christian, but this is conservative. This is Colorado Christian University, and to put up a guy like Donald Trump at a place that is supposed to uh, promote uh, the Christian virtues, and this guy is is the opposite in all of his selfishness and malicious comments uh, about so many people. Eric Sondman, political analyst. This event comes about two and a half weeks before the Republican convention, so I imagine there's going to be a lot of attention. It's not just Trump and Palin, but we're pretty close to the convention. What do you think the coverage is going to be like? Well, I think the coverage is going to be massive, both local coverage and uh, national, international coverage. If Trump and Palin have a sense of humor, maybe they'll do their appearances in Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> but uh, I find it interesting that uh, they picked, you know, Colorado has always prided itself on being, quote, the most educated state. Um, so we have the, the Donald Trump, Sarah Palin show coming to our most educated state. Trump is obviously doubling down here. I mean, he is, uh, the typical thing for politicians to do is once they get the nomination is they, they tack to the center. Not Trump, given that he doesn't have any ideology, the center is wherever he says it is. But they also try to compensate for their perceived weaknesses. And Trump doesn't play that game. He doubles down on the perceived weaknesses. Color me very doubtful that Sarah Palin is going to help him get across the threshold he needs to get across in this state. And Susan Green joins us from the ColoradoIndependent.com. Uh, Susan, Donald Trump, Sarah Palin arriving for an event in Denver. Is this a Democratic negative ad waiting to happen? I think any event involving Sarah Palin is a Democratic <laughs> event uh, ad waiting to happen. Um, I wonder, because it's right before the 4th of July, it's the 1st through the 3rd, how many people will really be paying attention? And I also wonder to what extent 
Trump will actually get out in the heat, get out in the state and talk to people. I mean, he's not a big favorite in this state. Um, he's done very little campaigning here. I'm curious to see what the support or lack thereof is. Should be interesting. We're only days away from Colorado's primary election where Colorado Republicans will select who faces Michael Bennett and Denver Democrats will select who faces independent candidate Helen Morgan for district attorney. Darrell Glenn secured an endorsement from Senator Ted Cruz this week and Robert Blaha and Jack Graham continue to hit the TV airwaves with ads. Uh, Patty, it's been a pretty sleepy primary season, but uh, now that we're to decision day and all the mail-in ballots coming in, who do you think is going to win in both these big races? Well, we all know how good I am at predicting <laughs> these. Uh, I think the winners will be the people who remember to get out and vote. And remember, if you're unaffiliated, you can go and affiliate at to vote for one of those. It's too late to do it by mail. You'd have to go to a voting center. And if you're not registered yet at all, you can go register on the day of the primary. So we could really up the ante on the number of people who are voting. I've been trying to figure out how many people switched parties, maybe to do, do a little um, oh sneaky subterranean action on this, but I don't have those numbers yet. It's about the same number of Republicans and Democrats who voted so far. The Republican group has been crazy. I mean, when you had Glenn taking off after Kaiser about his military record and then saying, I really didn't have any evidence, but at least people talked about it, that was the biggest misstep he's made so far. Kaiser, of course, has made his own missteps. And for all their ads, which I am hearing or seeing pretty endlessly, I don't see Blaha or Graham really getting traction. But with five candidates, it's not going to take much to split it. It could be just one group's, one candidate supporters really getting out, being loyal, and pushing them over. David, uh, as of taping, the Secretary of State's office reports a little over 20% turnout among Republicans. So, so far, pretty low. You never know how that's going to change in the next few days. But from what we've seen so far from the election season, uh, from the proposed turnout, and how this season has been nationally, who has the edge in this five-person race? My guess might be Jack Graham. He's one of the, the two that's really had, a, along with Law, put a lot of money into, into the race. Uh, for, for TV and on something that gets so little coverage, partly to the constriction and near extinction of, of print media in Colorado. Um, I, I think that, that might help a lot, and, and no, nobody has really much name recognition. The best thing for the Republicans is, is that this primary is going to be over in June, which gives whatever unknown candidate wins a chance to get going and, and start fundraising. It's a, a big difference from uh, the olden days, say in the 70s, when the primary might be in early September. And so you wouldn't, the Republicans would be continuing on this now and not able to, to start raising the national money to try to take on Bennett, who is the most vulnerable Democratic in, uh, incumbent in the Senate and, and could be beaten with a good candidate and a good campaign. Eric, of the uh, five Republicans running the primary, which campaign manager gets the best night's sleep on June 27th? Oh, probably none of them get a good night's sleep. I've never met a campaign manager who sleeps very well on the night before the election. That's a trick question, Dominic. I'm not going not, not to not jump at that one. Uh, I echo Patty uh, in the sense that this thing has been very low intensity, low profile, low excitement level. I think a lot of that goes to the presidential race. Trump and all of the wackiness around that whole thing, which continues now, has just taken all of the air out of the balloon. There's just no oxygen left for any of these candidates. And there's not really a top-tier candidate on paper among them. I, as I've said before, I would anticipate 
that the winner of this five-way primary will have maybe 30% of the vote and maybe under 30% of the vote, because they're all going to get a slice of the pie. There's not a token candidate among them. They're all going to get a slice of the pie. I happen to think maybe the more interesting race or the more consequential race over the long term is not that primary where the winner wakes up the next morning facing a, a fairly substantial, well-funded, entrenched incumbent in Michael Bennett. I think the more interesting one might be the Denver DA's race where, yes, there is an independent candidate waiting in November, but having the Democratic nomination in highly Democratic Denver is, is a place you want to be. I have no idea how to call that one. Uh, I, you know, three three candidates, all with some claim on it. No idea how to call it. Lastly, I'll make a prediction here, not about this primary, but that come November, the really interesting races in this state are not the presidential race in terms of how close it's going to be, and not the Bennett versus whomever race, but the really interesting races are the sixth congressional district between Morgan Carroll and Mike Kaufman, and a slew of ballot issues, unlike a list that this state has ever seen in terms of the number and the amount of money that's going to be spent total on all of them. That's where the focus is going to be in terms of a late election night come November. So Susan, take your pick. We have an interesting DA's race. We have an interesting Republican primary. Uh, when we're talking about this on June 29th, how do you think it all shakes out? I think uh, in terms of the Senate race, um, someone wrote today that uh, the winner of the GOP primary is Michael Bennett, um, <laughs> and, and I think that's true. I think you know Michael has six million dollars in the bank, um, and as Eric said, and others have as well, none of these candidates really stand out. None of them are really top-tier candidates. They're not a Cory Gardner, um, so I don't think he has much to worry about. I think it will be basically a snoozer race, although there's this factor about what happened in 2014 with Mark Udall, that um, there's this anti-incumbent sentiment in Colorado, and I think if anything, uh, Bennett has to worry about that more than any of these people in particular. I think, as Eric said, the big race really um, next Tuesday is the DA's race. I would pick, um, in terms of who I think will win, uh, not in terms of who I would vote for, by the way, is Michael Kerrigan, um, who has really been able to garner a ton of support from communities of color and various special interest groups. Um, I think has really distinguished himself as by far the most talented retail politician of all of them. But I would remind um, voters about him that before Black Lives Matter happened, before Ferguson happened, before there was a verdict in the Marvin Booker case, Michael Kerrigan, who's very much talking like a progressive now, um, really sounded like Mitch Morrissey 2.0. And so I think there's been a massive transformation in his messaging there. And um, I think the race against Helen Morgan, independent, come November will be fairly interesting. A sit-in protest by House Democrats lasting over 25 hours made headlines on Thursday this week, reminding some of the protests launched by Republicans in 2008. Meanwhile, a bipartisan bill that would give the Justice Department more leeway in denying those on the no-fly list from purchasing a firearm won a majority vote, but not enough to officially move forward. David, a lot of wacky stuff in Washington, uh, in both the House and the Senate, sit-ins, everything else. Take your pick from what you saw this week. Well, that, that bipartisan bill you mentioned was uh, sponsored by Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas, and it did get a majority, but a Democratic filibuster. Uh, and it got, by, as you said, it got Republican and Democratic votes, but it didn't get all the way to 60. Um, and, but a Democratic filibuster prevented that from passing, because you need 60 to... to uh, invoke cloture, which is an example of how this is not a serious issue uh, 
except in the political sense. The Democrats wanted to keep this as a political issue uh, to, because they think it will help them in November, like in 1999 after Columbine, when Congress was ready to pass some restrictions on gun shows, but the Democrats and the Clinton White House kept saying, oh, no, 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 nothing you can ever give us is ever going to be enough. We want to make, we will refuse to accept anything you want to do so we can have the issue around uh, for the next election. In the House of Representatives, there is a procedure if you're a member of the minority party and the majority party doesn't, isn't bringing up some bill you want, you can have something called a discharge petition. You get 218 signatures on it, which shows you've got the votes to pass it on the floor of the House, and by the rules of the House, that's how you bring something out. And it's been used successfully a, a variety of times. The rules of the House don't have this temper tantrum sit-in procedure. This is one of the ways where the Democratic leadership in the House is in uh, full alignment with Donald Trump in moving to turn this country into a banana republic. It is disgraceful that Ed Perlmutter, former majority leader of the Colorado Senate, who was a very effective majority leader, a good legislator, and has been his whole career a very serious legislator, participated in this grotesque stunt. And again, something for all the, it's going to fire up their base. They were fundraising over it while it was going on. It's not something serious about trying to actually prevent terrorist attacks. The terrorists in Orlando passed many background checks, including uh, being a licensed security guard for a company, Wackenha, which is now called D4S, which is a license, which is a contractor for the Department of Homeland Security. So there's not more background checks that would have done something about Orlando. And what they're fighting for is now they're having sit-ins against civil rights. They want to say that if somebody at the FBI secretly puts you on a list, then you can be, they can make it a felony for you to exercise your civil rights. That is not a principle that if that ever gets established in our law is going to be limited uh, to the Second Amendment, which I understand they hate that, but a President Trump is going to take that principle and apply it in lots of other contexts. And if it's not President Trump, then you'll have some other guy who will do it and abuse it. Uh, Martin Luther King used to be on a gun owner who was on an FBI list. Eric, it seems to me that Democrats have a lot more to gain from publicity than GOP might be losing. But it's late June. Uh, the attention span of uh, the Colorado, not the Colorado, the, the national voter isn't terribly long. Do people remember this sit-in in November? I think some remember this sit-in. Politics these days is basically theater, which is why Trump has risen, because he is basically an actor. Uh, and as theater goes, this was pretty good theater. It was compelling. It brought the cameras there. It fired up the social media. To me, it is all testimony to the dysfunction of Washington, that, that basically we now have government by theater, and we have candidates who, on a daily basis, try to, to, try to jump to theatrics. David is right in the sense that this has everything to do with November. This is not about forcing a vote in the House. I'm not sure that the Democrats actually really want or expect a vote. This, this is not about a specific bill. This is all a November strategy. 
whenever an incident happens, as tragic as that was in Orlando, as a country now, we immediately go sprinting to our respective corners. And if you're of left of center mind, your corner is gun control. And if you're of right of center mind, your corner is probably immigration policy. And there's very little dialogue between those corners. There's very little dialogue between camps. Um, I find the whole thing distressing. I thought it was effective theater. Did it move the ball forward? In a political sense, yes, but not in a substantive dialogue sense. Susan, do you think Demo House Democrats or even Senate Democrats are looking to turn the events from this week into more action down the road? I hope so. Um, I agree with Eric. It was theater. I think it was effective theater. But let's be clear, Democrats um, also have obstructed gun control for years and even decades. And what's changed this year, not just because of Orlando, but because of what's coming out of Hillary Clinton's mouth, I mean, suddenly she is harnessing and embracing this outrage about gun violence. Um, I think the next step beyond this measure, which this no-fly list, no-gun thing, really would not have prevented um, this catastrophe from happening and, and many others is, you know, the question of how serious are they willing to get? And what we know works isn't about, you know, no-fly lists. What we know works is much more about policing on the ground. Um, it's about identifying the one or two percent of at-risk males in cities who are committing gun violence. It's about taking guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. It's about uh, limiting high-round ma high magazines. We know those things work. On the 1 to 2 percent of high-risk males, that's a tough thing to do in this country. There's so much bad faith uh, between police and communities of color that it's very hard for police to get into these communities and convince the communities, yes, you need buy-in on this. We're, we want to go after these 1 to 2 percent of you know, at-risk males. And for the communities to embrace that requires a lot of reconciliation and a lot of uh, sort of d discussion that has not happened either at the, in the presidential race um, or really in the Obama administration. So I'd like, I hope that something does happen in the next four months. I sort of doubt that it will. Patty, I think we know where um, died in the wool the Democrats believe how the sit-in went and how uh, Republicans felt. But when you look at the independents, both in Colorado and the nation, who decide the elections, how do you think they respond to seeing the uh, events from this week? I think they would have preferred to see the Democrats go sit in at the FBI headquarters and Homeland Security, where if they had done their job really vetting the killer, they would have found out a lot of things. There were warnings. There was one person who would, wouldn't let him go on a security force. There were plenty of warnings out there. Well, however you feel about guns aside, there were warnings that we should have caught this guy. It's a topic we could talk about for another 25 hours sit-in, but I just think it was too much theater, not enough substance. We'll be talking about guns plenty, though, with Hillary's position, with Trump meeting with the NRA. There will be no shortage of discussion. The Denver Post announced this week that 20 members of its newsroom, including editorial page editor Vincent Carroll and longtime TV critic Joanne Osho, will leave the Denver Post in buyout packages. Political editor Chuck Plunkett will take over the editorial page as of July 2nd. Eric, we've lamented the shrinking, through shrinking Denver Post at this table for a long time. But this was, a, I think, a, a big moment, losing somebody like Vincent Carroll. And this was the first time I saw more coverage of the hedge fund owners of the Denver Post and really pointing to that problem, that the Post is making money, but the hedge fund owners doing something terrible with it. Will that have ramifications? 
I don't know if it has ramifications. It's in one newspaper town. You flash back not all that many years ago where you not only had two papers, you had two robust papers with strong edit and differing editorial voices. Now you have one paper, it's shrinking on a daily basis. The amount of local content it generates is shrinking. This one, when I heard the word on, I guess it was Wednesday, um, uh, shortly before it was announced that, that Vincent Carroll was taking this buyout package, it was one of those comparable to when our former table mate Lynn Bartles took mm -hmm. a previous buyout that sort of took your breath away or, or made, you, made you sit back. First of all, mega kudos to Vincent Carroll at two newspapers in town over many, many years and decades, he really established a name for himself, not only as a supremely intellectual guy, but just a decent guy. Somebody that, whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him, the door was open. He was always open to a rational, intelligent conversation. He will be missed. Chuck Plunkett is a, will be very capable, but Vincent will be missed. Joanne Ostro, and then there's a whole list of names. I won't read it. Westward had it uh, online this morning. but. You know, David Olinger has been one of the finer investigative reporters over there. Cyrus McCrimmon is a friend who's a very talented photographer. I, I'm not going to read the list, but there are 20 some names. These are both careers that have been cut short uh, because the, the newspaper industry continues to hemorrhage. Uh, and secondly, it's, it's content that us as news consumers mm -hmm. will no longer have access to. It's talent gone by the wayside. I find it very sad. Uh, Susan, at uh, your website, ColoradoIndependent.com, I've been heartened to see some of the former stars in the Post, both yourself, uh, Mike Litwin, um, uh, Michael Keefe, uh, among uh, many uh, more folks. Are Hopefully, will we see more of our your former colleagues of the Post maybe joining other media uh, outlets here in town? Yes, I, I wish I could make uh, a couple announcements, but it's a bit <laughs> premature, but absolutely. Um, also, our phone is ringing off the hook, for sure. There's still such a need and such a hunger for journalism in this state. Um, what happened at the Post was the very slow, gradual decimation of that newsroom to now at one-third of what it was at its peak. And what they've ousted, essentially, is institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't read the Post, and many people don't, you still, as a sort of member of our community, want to know that somebody is watching power, the halls of power in this state. And with every buyout and with every person leaving um, and with every sort of new 20-something person as talented as they may be, you're losing that institutional knowledge and you're, you're losing that sort of watchdog uh, um, role that, that the media plays. What also has been lost there is joy. It's a joyless newsroom. And I know because I worked in it. Um, and from the time that the Rocky went under until the time I left when they were actually spiking my columns, um, which is, you know, pretty intense, uh, that place became like, I've, I've said this on the show before, a bank. It became like working in a bank. And when we saw those Denver Post journalists marching in front of that building, I think it was last week, against that hedge fund, and when I heard some of the people there are the most careful, you know, the people who are still there often are some of the least outspoken um, people, and that's why they are still there, let's be clear, okay? And when I heard some of them, and I won't name names, say things like, I had nothing to lose but get out in front of this building. That place has been gutted already. We have nothing to lose. People who will go back, I mean, when you asked Eric, will there be repercussions, I think you were asking, are those people going to get slammed by this hedge fund for speaking against the hedge fund? 
Uh, I wouldn't doubt that they will, um, but I think they feel like they have nothing to lose. And we, uh, you know, as much as we compete against the Denver Post, it's it's really what what my grandmother will call a shonda for all of us in Yiddish um, that, that that newspaper is shrinking so much. Patty, we're running out of time, but what is your reaction to the recent uh, buyouts at the Post? Oh, well, it's just so sad. And here is what is scary about it, besides the fact that you've lost two-thirds of the newsroom. They did not get the number of people they wanted in this buy-off. So now we heard there was a lot of arm twisting over the last week for people get out now or you might lose your job. Now we could say layoffs, too. So it's a sad day. Uh, and uh, David, wrap it up for us. Alan Salazar, the former aide for Senator Udall and Governor Hickenlooper, uh, said that Vincent Carroll was the Edmund Burke of Colorado. That's, that's accurate. He was, uh, he's one of the great Colorado journalists of, of all time. And besides what everybody could see from, from him in public, I've, I was a columnist for the Rocky Mountain News for nine years, and he was a fantastic editor uh, that really brought up everybody and their, their quality and professionalism. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, uh, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun starts us off. Well, I am bringing a mailing that came in the very ugly DA's campaign. <laughs> There's a PAC supporting Michael Kerrigan. It's not his campaign. It's the PAC's campaign, but horrible pictures of Beth McCann, and in this case, a very badly misquoted article in Westworld from 1993. <laughs> I, I'm tempted to vote against it just because of this. We never know. Westworld.com may have actually said that, but uh, we will never know. <laughs> David. Well, when that Yul Brenner rope out went crazy, it, was, yeah. it did cause a lot of problems. The University of Northern Colorado, again, their disgrace this week is there was an incident on campus where two professors uh, taught classes where they offered students readings on both sides of controversial issues. And a couple student cry bullies complained about that, and so the administration counseled the teachers, the professors, about how they need to change their teaching methods. It's really questionable. Whether we, we should have a, a, a state conversation about whether the taxpayers should keep on dumping money into that cesspit of conformity. Eric. The United States Supreme Court on the University of Texas affirmative action ruling, there is a moral case certainly to be made in favor of affirmative action. Last I looked, the Supreme Court should not be in the business of making moral decisions. Their job is to interpret the law. I find it impossible to read the U.S. Constitution and the Equal Protection Clause and see how it is possible to classify and discriminate based on race. Susan. The Michael Hancock's administration in the city and county of Denver, which sold, the city sold uh, the bonds to build a new detention center downtown by saying they wouldn't have to hire any more um, sheriffs and they would work very diligently to keep the inmate population down. Now the inmate population is at or near capacity, if not over, and the Hancock administration refused yesterday to release the numbers of how many inmates are in that jail, which is public information. Wow. We have a disgrace of the week from one of our viewers, uh, Alex Tights, who says the downtown Denver partnership for taking too long to increase security on the 16th Street Mall. The mall is one of Denver's biggest tourist attractions, but the increased documented incidents of violent crime only served to increase fear in the mall. The DPD hired a new security person, but has taken weeks to announce a plan to combat the problem. So if you want to have your disgrace of the week or say something nice right on the air, be sure to go to our Twitter or Facebook page. And rather quickly, we're already over time. Say something nice with somebody. Patty. Uh, Denver's music scene, it's a great local scene, and Westworld is celebrating it tomorrow with an all-day showcase. <laughs> David. 
the people of the United Kingdom who exercised the same choice that the American people did on July 4th, 1776, to dissolve the political bands that connect them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Nicely presented. Eric. My friend that I get to sit next to on this particular program in these ugly shirts, who's been through an ordeal over the last couple months and handled it with incredible grace, as is her style, and um, all's going to be well. You're here. Susan. Thank you. Um, David Olinger, who's leaving the Denver Post, who is a fantastic investigative journalist and has given us some of the best investigative journalism we've had in the state over a couple, uh, about a decade and a half. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. I want to tell you a quick thing about next week. It's, you're going to love this. It is our annual Time Machine episode. We go back this time to 1876. That's right, 140 years back to the first year of statehood for uh, Colorado. It's absolutely fantastic. That's going to be on July 1st at 8 p.m. We're back better than ever on July 8th. Thanks very much for tuning in. I'm For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Cassidy. Thanks for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.